Anthony, let me say a few words about music before we begin. Uh, Henrik Goretzky was supposed to have said that if you can go for three days without music, you might as well just grab a beer, get a girl, and forget about composing music. Well, I can't go for three days without music. I have it on pretty much all day, every day, uh, either the radio or uh, music that I like, which encompasses a very wide range. Uh, and I find that I don't compose music except in those few minutes before I've had my first cup of coffee in the morning and I can't seem to get music out of my head. Um, but I also can't live without it. So uh, I've been thinking about how music is related to the main thing I do all day, which is to write about the work of Vygotsky and the work of Halliday. Uh, and I do find that some music uh, does interfere with this work, in which case I have to find music that does not. Uh, I also find that some work um, works better with some kinds of music, in particular uh, when I'm doing repetitive things like coding data, coding language data, which I have to do for Halliday a lot my holiday and work, I have to do this a lot. Um, it helps to have something quite rhythmic, quite slow. Uh, and for deep writing, it helps to listen to Gorietsky, <laughs> particularly the symphony of sad songs, uh, which I don't find sad, actually. I, I, uh, I get that he's trying to compose about very sad themes, but I do find that uh, the relationship between music and emotion is much more like the relationship between phonology and semantics than musicians like to admit. I think we all tend to consider that music has a somehow more direct relationship uh, to its meaning than other semiotic systems, and in particular, it's more direct than language. I deny that. I think that uh, music is every bit as complicated, every bit as um, conventional, cultural, historical, not arbitrary. Saussure set up the myth that because phonology seems to vary so much, um, because articulation in phonology, the vowels and consonants seem to vary so much from language to language and the assignment of particular combinations of vowels and consonants to particular meanings seems to vary so much from language to language. He set up the myth that it was all arbitrary. Arbitrary is the wrong word. The word he used was arbitraire, which in French means something much closer to conventional than arbitrary. Arbitrary means something like random in English. And in French, arbitraire means volitional, means you have control over it. And it means you choose it but it doesn't mean that your choice is completely free. And I'm gonna suggest that's true of music, that um, uh, the relationship between music and emotion is profoundly conventional, it's profoundly cultural. So a good example is the music that we were discussing, this music, um, which is by Oliver Mtkukuzi. I do not pretend to speak Shona, and uh, I won't pretend to translate it because I think in a certain sense that the idea of using Google Translate to try to access the lyrics um, is an error within an error. Hi, my name is Dr. Oliver Mtukudzi and I'm here to present my new album, Hanyua Kotsen. And on this album, there's this song, Asati Azila. I'm talking about early marriages. Parents marrying their children at a tender age. Please, let's be self-disciplined enough to respect our children, to respect our society. By letting these children grow up, let them grow up.
Ausati wa putuza Ausati wa gura Kungo putuza chet Ajirevi wa gura Ausati wa masi Ausati wa masi Ausati wa masi Oh, 
our first the first error is that is to say that the the song is reducible to its lyrics. Uh, Tuku is not a lyricist. He's a he's a musician, and uh, I think the lyrics are what I would describe as agitation, as opposed to propaganda. When you read Tukhanov, when you are a, a young radical like me, like I was many years ago, uh, you quickly learn the difference between standing on a street corner and shouting until you are hoarse. Um, to anyone who passes by, uh, taking a very few simple ideas and trying to communicate them to everyone you see face to face. That is the work of an agitator. Uh, and then as you get older, as I am now, <laughs> you learn that there's another kind of work, just as good, just as important, and just as satisfying in some ways, which Plekhanov called propaganda. Propaganda is a nasty word in English. It was not in Russian. It was quite respectable. And I certainly consider, considering myself a propagandist, considering that what I do most every day is propaganda, I consider it not at all um, derogatory. And by propaganda, Plekhanov meant taking a complex system, a complex body of ideas, a whole ideology, and conveying it to what is necessarily a smaller group usually a more selective group, sometimes self-selecting. So Tuku is an agitator. And the reason he's an agitator is very simple. He's living in a crisis and he wants to talk to everybody he sees on the street. So he uses the vernacular, which is Shona, and he delivers a message which is historically, culturally, highly contextualized and only makes meaning uh, in its context. So to go to Google Translate, you understand that the underlying algorithm in Google Translate is essentially an online dictionary. It's a gigantic database of texts that have already been translated. And then it takes a segment in, in the language that you input, and it tries to find a similar segment in the database of already translated text. So to say it's artificial translation is, is wrong. It's like saying that a, you know, a robot with a human being inside it is a, is a robot. Uh, so Google Translate is essentially just a way of matching text to texts. And when the texts are very small, and the texts of Shona are going to be very small, uh, you invariably come up with things that are not particularly useful. In contrast, go to the video which Tuku himself made, which is part of his agitation. It's part of him standing on the street corner and shouting at you. Look at the story he's telling. Look at the little girl. Look at the mother, or maybe she's an older sister, who knows? Uh, and look at the wedding party that is already assembled, the expectant groom the, who has some remorse, the father of the bride who is ready to fight with the lead singer. Look at the argument that they have and look at how the story it's not really a story. It's more like an argument. It's more like a dispute between two people in a village. They're having an argument. And Uncle Tuku arrives to the wedding, gets off his bicycle after receiving some useful instructions from a little girl who's probably a little sister, and then starts a fight, picks a fight. Um, the reason I say it's not a story is that there is no happy ending. There's no sad ending. There's no ending. It's just an argument and an argument. And it looks like they're going to come to blows at the end, but that's the end of the song.
That's why I say that Tuku is an agitator. He is there to argue, and this song is an argument. Now, what's the connection with Vygotsky? It's a little indirect, but it does have something to do with a class I recently taught in sex education, which is designed for middle school and high school teachers like yourself. Uh, I'm trying to introduce people to what Vygotsky called the working hypothesis that we have for development in adolescence. Adolescence, if you take the pedology as a whole, is simply one phase, the last phase of childhood. And it's a strange phase because of course, it's called the transitional phase, both in the sense that it's the transition between childhood and adulthood, and in the sense that it's uh, a transition between puberty, the crisis of 13. And um, the three great peaks that Vygotsky introduces as his working hypothesis in the first volume of the psychology of adolescence. What Vygotsky says is that for animals, the situation is basically uncomplicated, that uh, the animal arrives at sexual maturation, at general anatomical maturation, it grows to full size and it's fully capable of hunting or gathering or doing whatever it is that the animal has to do to survive uh, and also becomes a member of the herd or um, the flock or maybe leaves the family unit and becomes a loner because some animals are loners for whatever you want to call it whatever shape it takes we can call this societal maturation or in human beings social cultural maturation uh, cultural historical maturation. When you come into your, your historical patrimony, the thing we call culture. Now, for animals, this is uncomplicated. It all takes place at the same time. And it takes place at a place that's not that far from the midpoint of life because animals die young. So in children, things are much more complicated than that. And the reason is that at the end of childhood, like any other animal, uh, human beings achieve sexual maturation. I mean, actually, if anything, sexual maturity has been getting earlier and earlier and earlier, particularly here in South Korea, where the diet is good, uh, particularly compared to what's going on north of the DMZ. The diet is quite good here. And as a result, puberty has steadily over the last hundred years gotten uh, months and then several years earlier. And fourth graders and fifth graders are having their first periods, having their first erections and having their first ejaculations and so on. And this yesterday I was teaching a class of some first year undergraduates who were telling me that, um, yeah, middle school students are, are having sex. Uh, middle school students are having sex in fourth and fifth grade. And since a lot of what they know about sex comes from watching porn on the, uh, on the internet, uh, they generally tend to go all the way and they don't bother with the preliminaries that were such an important part of um, of sex during my post-adolescence, actually, it was in my 20s, during the um, AIDS crisis when people were extremely careful about going all the way. 
uh, unless you had some very trustworthy form of protection or unless you knew quite precisely the immune status of your the immune status of your your potential partner so so things change they change quite quickly and this right away tells us that the rules that we lay down for animals are no longer the same now Vygotsky does talk a lot about primitive societies uh, and it's a little unclear as it always is with Vygotsky to what extent he is he is <laughs> quoting because Vygotsky like Marx writes a great deal which is not for publication uh, and irony uh, does not um, transmit well in the written form and um, scare quotes are <laughs> not liberally used unless you're writing something polemical for publication uh, and Vygotsky does tend like Marx to take copious notes without really noting that it's not his view it's somebody else's view so he does take a lot of notes on because he's very interested in other societies and in uh, African societies in particular uh, and in other forms of social organization pre-capitalist forms of organization pre-modern forms of organization and a lot of his informational sources are missionaries and uh, colonialists and imperialists of various kinds. And so he does write about Africans and he writes about early marriage. And he does say that among primitive peoples or in early man, there is no adolescence. Adolescence is a modern invention. Of course, so is childhood. I mean, childhood children, uh, if we were like animals, we would uh, wean our children much earlier than we do. Uh, uh, sorry, much later. Actually, animals tend to tend to nurse their children much later than human beings, uh, and human beings quickly decided that it, there was um, money to be made if you wean the child early and then teach the child to eat adult food, and then uh, allow the mother to take part in food production. That actually, for one thing, the child, the mother can then have another child, or the mother can simply feed the whole family instead of just feeding child as the mother does when in nursing. So, um, so childhood was invented. Childhood was invented by weaning children early and by introducing them to adult food early and um, allowing them to, you know, as Jeannie Leib says, um, to some legitimate peripheral participation in replacing the food that they consume. Vygotsky feels that adolescence is similarly being invented and that it's not being invented all over, that there are certain classes of people, child laborers, for example, is one. Um, the adolescent working in the corner mom and pop grocery is another, who's not going to university, which is rare here in South Korea. Um, all of these are, uh, all of these are violations of the right to adolescence, which is something that Vygotsky feels very strongly about. The right to adolescence, including uh, the right to the kind of tertiary education that has become almost universal here in South Korea. So, sorry, I had to cut out. Um, let me continue where I left off with the defense of Vygotsky against the charge that he uh, had a worldview that discriminates against primitive peoples uh, and that and the charge that primitivism in Vygotsky refers to uh, racial differences or different perceived differences in um, uh, meaning potential. When I was at the University of Chicago and I took classes in anthropology, uh, we had a professor called Richard Schwader, who later became slightly notorious, who would lay out three different views of anthropology. Uh, the first one was, um, we're all the same. Uh, there are no differences. And so we are equal. And this is essentially Chomskyan universalism. The idea is that languages are basically universal, that human beings are essentially universal in some biological or, uh, if you like, um, 
legalistic or ethical way. We are all equal. We are all the same. There are no differences. The second one is that there are differences and that they matter. And this is essentially what you have to believe if you're a, a developmentalist, if you believe that children grow up and that, that that's generally a good thing. Uh, and uh, the question of whether this also applies to societies uh, is, it seems to me, linked that uh, it's that some societies have very long um, life expectancies. For example, I get two lifetimes where my great grandfather might have gotten only one. Uh, you know, we think of Vygotsky as dying extremely young, but when you look at the number of Russians, when you look at life expectancy at birth in the year that uh, Vygotsky was born, you see that actually he lived about four years longer than the life expectancy. Now that's misleading because infant mortality was incredibly high. So once you get born, you should live, at least have a, a chance, a lottery chance at living to be 70 years old. And he didn't do that. But um, still, life expectancy at the time that Vygotsky was born for Russian citizens, this is 1896, uh, was roughly 34 years old. And uh, it's not like that anymore. Uh, after capitalism was reestablished, after the Soviet Union was overthrown, I think one of the most obvious marks that this was a huge step backwards was the fall in life expectancy. And one of the markers that the United States is currently undergoing a period of severe social regression uh, is that the life expectancy has been falling. So I think there are certain objective markers that indicate that the second, the second view, the view that um, the view that there are differences between societies and that they genuinely matter in the kinds of potential that young people have, I think that developmental view is certainly Vygotsky's view. But of course, <clears throat> people who belong to the third view, like Richard Schwader himself, will say that's racism. That uh, institutionalizes a view that some societies are superior to others. Schwader's own view was that there are all differences, we're all different, and it doesn't matter <laughs> because uh, each society is perfectly adapted to its ecological circumstances in its own way. There are differences between languages and it doesn't matter because each language has evolved to do a slightly different job and it does it perfectly. Uh, now, the idea of perfection I, as a developmentalist, I find very problematic and, and I didn't pursue anthropology for that reason. <clears throat> because I want to put to you, I want to put to you a fourth view. Uh, and that's that it's this, it's a modification of the second view. It's this, it's that um, there are differences they matter, but we're all at the same level, basically. All societies are essentially, because of the way in which uh, the basis of society has been organized, the economic, and to a certain extent, the social and the cultural basis of society, which are in some more or less indirect way uh, linked to the economic basis of society, uh, we're all at the same level, and that level is pretty primitive. So I want to put it to you that the kinds of problems we see um, in the Tuku song that I began with, uh, the song about early marriage, that they are our problems. Uh, they are not the problems of some primitive society like the societies that Vygotsky was uh, writing was hypothesizing belonged to early man, or even the ones that he got actual data from missionaries and from um, uh, people uh, who were involved in the colonialist enterprise. Um, I'm going to suggest to you that they are our problems. Let me, let me begin by showing you um, the work of Hokart, which is Morris Hokart. Uh, who Vygotsky cites, uh, he's a guy who kind of uh, began as a, <clears throat> an anthropologist and went native and became a schoolmaster in Fiji and took lots of interesting photographs of coming of age ceremonies of young women in Fiji, uh, including the one on the right, where you can see that the women are essentially wearing nothing from uh, 
the waist up, although they have covered their bodies in coconut oil and made them shine. And they're from the waist down, it's a different story. They're laden with all the family goods, the, the wealth and the richness that shows that they uh, have completely, um, that they are bringing good dowry and that they are worth the bride price and so on. Uh, and uh, they're flaunting their stuff in front of the, the village. And I'm gonna suggest that something very similar is going on in K-pop. So this is a song that came out, I guess it was the song of the summer last year. Uh, it's Blackpink who are, they, they're organized according to the usual form, formula of the factory, the big hit factory that turns out big hits in Korea these days. You kind of organize this uh, pop down menu of uh, young women who are all the same, but different enough so that you can have a favorite. Uh, and then this is, given to young women as a role model and it's given to young men as a sort of a fantasy object uh, and then they sing songs that are all about availability in one way or another uh, and they the songs are not terribly important they're musically uninteresting and i refuse to play one uh, they tend to be one note wonders or two note wonders very very simple things sort of played over and over and over again uh, and then you sort of switch from one um, dancer to the other and they each sort of make their pitch, choose me in one way or another. Uh, and this is how the music industry is organized and has been organized for the last 10 years or so. Uh, there are other stories as well. There's horrible stories about how, about the apprenticeships that these young women have to undergo. Uh, of course, there are there's huge amounts of um, competition to try to get into the apprenticeships and prostitution and all of the nastiness that you see in, in a major show business enterprise like this. But I want to I want you to concentrate on the dress. I want you to concentrate on the fact that uh, these are not particularly typical dresses for, for uh, Blackpink, but you can see that it's sort of the, the world of Fiji sort of inverted. That is to say that they wear a fair amount on the top including, I see a Chanel kangaroo pouch there on, on uh, uh, Jisoo, or maybe it's Jenny, I can't remember. Uh, and they wear a fair amount on top, but um, the dress scheme for below is what they call Shijung, which means the lower clothes are essentially not there. And so it's sort of like the world of Fiji turned upside down. Turning to the lyrics, which as I say are, um, somewhat arbitrary when they're fixed to the music. Um, as I said, they they come out and they dance and they sing one by one and they each make their pitch. And this one is from the, uh, the odd member of the group who's called Lisa. She's not Korean, she's from uh, Thailand and she's on the far right in the picture. Uh, and she specializes in an approximation of sort of West Coast rap uh, and so this is chilling like a villain, yeah, rah, rah, rah. Uh, and you can see this is phonologically organized, but not semantically so. It's not designed to be coherent. It's designed to produce a, a pattern of um, repetition and variation where the, um, the head of the syllable is varied, the um, heart of the syllable uh, is repeated, that produces what we call rhyme, uh, and the actual meaning of it doesn't matter nearly as much as the semant as the chronological patterns that, that she can set up. And the same thing's true in the Korean, sort of michin, michin, han, slightly different, lots of repetition, sokdo in my lafera, which uh, uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It means something like crazy, run, going crazy fast in a, a lafera, which I gather is a kind of car. Nomupala um, means, means I'm going very quickly, she's going very fast. Uh, and something about if you want, you can take a shortcut. And then millis billis, very unclear what that means, except possibly related to millions and billions. Uh, and then mil polum hayorum. Again, this is just looking at the phonological um, repetitions. Um, 
I suppose it has something to do with punishment and summer and wearing ice on your wrist, uh, and, which could be diamonds, could be drugs, could be ice cream, God knows. Uh, the English is slightly more sensible, but you can see that the message is early marriage. The message is early sexual activity in any case. Uh, so keep it moving like my lease up. I'm waiting, you know, my lease is up, keep going. You think you're fly, boy, where's your visa? What gives you the right to be here? Mona Lisa, kind of Lisa, that's her name, and then needs an ice cream man that treats her. And this is from a group that regularly sings, don't want a boy, give me a man. And uh, you can see that one of the things they do, including you know, wearing high school uniforms, wearing middle school uniforms, uh, is appeal to the pedophile audience, that they are selling themselves to older men very much the same way as uh, the, the situation that Tuku is attacking in Zimbabwe. Um, the interesting thing is that we, in our civilized way, imagine that the situation we're setting up with Blackpink, which is a situation I, I mean, I've seen the results of this. I've seen uh, students who come to my class and who say that, yes, um, middle school students are selling themselves to salary men uh, in order to make money to buy fashion accessories. Uh, and yes, um, there is prostitution. Uh, fostered by exactly this kind of culture in exactly these kinds of patterns here in South Korea. And the weird thing is that the people who write lyrics like this, I think the, this one was written by somebody called Becca Boom, uh, consider that they're doing something empowering, that they are helping the primitives of the world out of their enthrallment to patriarchy. So Becca Boom says, I think it speaks specifically to Lisa's originality and uniqueness and also as a fan, you know, singing it to yourself, singing along with the music after you've paid your money, of course, just feeling like you are a work of art, you're an object. <laughs> and you need a man who sees that you're a work of art and treats you that way. Yeah, sounds like child marriage to me. <laughs> Even if your name isn't Lisa, you are your own Mona Lisa. <laughs> there will be, never be another one. I think it's important that women view themselves in that way. Well, in the material world, I suppose you have to say it's, it's pretty empowering because it's generated an enormous amount of money and some of it has gone to Lisa, although recently she was built out of it by her manager or something like that. Uh, and of course, a lot of it's going to people like Becca Boom, which is why they're singing in English, by the way. Um, uh, BTS is, is developing a fan base abroad and is trying to, trying to widen its revenue base. And this brings me back to another point I was going to make about Tuku's song, which is uh, Tuku sings in Shona. And I think rather than translate the Shona into English, um, I think the message is peculiarly in Shona. I think it's a Shona message. And I think he very deliberately made the great choice that all artists have to make of being an agitator or being a propagandist. And the choice of language is certainly very much part of that. When I was in North Africa, um, I met a writer who had written a beautiful novel, La Répubiation, in, uh, in French and not in Arabic uh, and not in his own language, uh, which was Kabyle. And I remember him saying that um, every writer has a choice, that you can write for a very small number of people who don't really need it in the whole of North Africa, or you can write for the people who you really want to talk to, you really want to uh, convince and sway and influence, if you like, to use a YouTube term, um, by speaking their own language, but you can only do that in a very small area. And so he had chosen to be an agitator. And I think that is Tuku's choice as well. How do we know this? Well, we know this partly from songs like the one he did about AIDS, uh, which does have an English refrain in it. Uh, and 
it's bilingual. Uh, it's the song Pudi. Uh, you can see that he did it. He was much younger when he did it. And this is the song that he wrote during the, the terrible moments of the AIDS crisis in Southern Africa. Um, there is a translation, which we have from XMCA, courtesy of Zaza Kabayadondo, of the part that I was really asking her about. Uh, and that's this part where um, if you run it through Google Translate, it just says it must hurt to be raped by your roommate. Now you can see <laughs> that what Google Translate has done is to somehow transfer the song out of its local context into our context. Uh, but in fact, Zaza explains to us that what this really means is um, it must hurt to be raped by the man who paid your bride price, who uh, paid your rura or your labola. Uh, and uh, the song says, especially if you have the virus, but it goes on. It says, once you have the virus, you go knowing that you are also infected, that you also have the virus. Go knowing that you have the virus. There isn't much that's explicit here. It's certainly not as explicit as the lesson I gave you last time, Anthony, the one about uh, the artificial insemination of cows and how AIDS is actually spread. Uh, and uh, it's, just a, it's just a very general statement that once you have the virus, uh, however you got it, uh, homosexual, heterosexual, voluntary or involuntary, uh, and remember that Tuku is recognizing that uh, many of the people who have the AIDS virus really had no choice in the matter at all. Uh, they were married. Uh, and in this society, as in our society, uh, there is a, an obligation, or at least a very strong expectation, that you will be sexually available to your spouse. Uh, and there are attempts to reestablish the notion of consent in marriage. But I think, um, I think that particularly the way in which consent has been, is, is being discussed now, which is largely in the context of uh, Grindr, Tinder, and various forms of dating, um, it's, not, it's not realistic uh, to expect that consent needs to be renegotiated in exactly the same way in a stable relationship and that therefore we need ways of discussing how consent uh, is renewed and how consent is made part of a normal married relationship. And believe it or not, Tuku is a pioneer here. Tuku is talking about how uh, the virus, um, the thing that you do not consent to uh, is being spread through things that are sometimes consensual, often not and that once you have it, it is upon you, it is incumbent on you uh, to go knowing you have the virus. And the only way Tuku could really uh, involve this kind of complexity in a song and not have it, not destroy it musically, you'll notice that his songs are musically quite simple and quite singable, and that too is part of his agitational strategy. The only way he could do this is to make the the takeaway of the song into an interrogative rather than a declarative. So uh, the song Todi is, what shall we do? What shall we do? So he doesn't have an answer. He has a question. Um, now here, I think the Vygotsky connection is biographical. And um, to demonstrate this, uh, I do have one more song, uh, which I didn't, I didn't warn you about, but it's a, a, a very strong favorite of mine. Let's see if I can call it up. Um, I imagine you can edit a better version of this than I can. Um, it's a, an opera song, and it's sung by the great Rolando Villazzoni. Uh, let me make sure that, it, you can, that you can see this on your screen. Ah, here we go. Let's see. And it's also sung by Anna Netrebka, uh, the great Russian soprano. 
Uh, it's from Traviata, and uh, it's the moment where um, Violetta, the, the courtesan, the prostitute, uh, who is dying of tuberculosis, has just hosted a gay party, uh, and in the middle of the gay party, she has coughing fit, and all of her guests flee, except for one who has admired her from a distance. Uh, he is uh, Alfredo, Alfredo Gervont, Skyan of a rich Parisian family, uh, and he is in love. Now, the way this is usually presented is, to, is a very sweet love song where he confesses that he has loved her from afar and kneels at her and begs to be able to, to be allowed to come and see her the next day, and she gracefully consents. I want you to look at the song, which, again, I hope you'll splice in a good version of this, uh, and with a slightly different idea in mind, that um, what uh, Violetta is really worried about is that she's dying, and she knows that she is infectious, and that she has a disease that will kill whoever cares for her. Right now, that's her servant. And servants are expected to do that. They're expected to take a bullet when you are dying of a deadly disease. Uh, but she feels the need for human companionship uh, given by an equal. <laughs> we won't go into the, uh, the evil and the strange delusion behind the, um, the feudal ideals that Violetta has. This is a piece of its time. Uh, but here is Alfredo, who has uh, sworn to die for her. And for a moment, she is swayed. Maybe, maybe Alfredo is the answer. Maybe this man will give me a, a beautiful moment of sweetness on my way out of this life. Uh, and then she thinks, no, he's too young. He's too full of life. Not Alfredo. I must turn him away. And he will not be turned away. So here's the song. Oh, 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 oh,
I want to put it to you that everything you will find in uh, in the Song of the Summer by Blackpink, including the sort of the dressing scheme of not wearing anything from the waist down and, and the suggestions of prostitution, uh, all of that is in that song. But there's also something else that is not in Blackpink uh, and that we need that is a part of sex education. And I will say that this gets us back to Vygotsky's three peaks. I said last time that uh, the core of Vygotsky's view of adolescence is that the adolescent, because of, well, because of the earlier arrival of puberty and the later arrival of sociocultural maturation because uh, children are able to have children earlier and they're able to feed them much, much later, uh, that there's this very, very long desert of adolescence in between. Uh, and this is what Alfredo is essentially going through in, in the song. Uh, I put it to you that this great period of adolescence that is so socioculturally created, um, is creating a bind for our kids. It's creating a, um, a terrible situation in which children are faced with the three great concepts. I mean, Vygotsky talks a lot about the formation of concepts in adolescence, but he doesn't, it, very often he presents it as if he's only talking about academic concepts. That is to say concepts of number, for example, algebra and concepts of if you read thinking and speech and exploitation and revolution and building socialism or concepts about, let's say sexual consent. Uh, I wanna put it to you that there's really something much more serious going on in adolescence and that's three concepts. The first is, who am I? Sense of persona, sense of personality. Okay, I know that I can play various different roles. I can be a good son, I can be a good student, I can be a bad son, I can be a bad student. Um, but which one of those different roles that I play is really me? Okay, that's, we'll call it the first P, the P of persona. Uh, and that persona very often in the adolescent's mind will have something to do with general anatomical maturation. So that's the first process that Vygotsky talks about. The second question, the second concept that the adolescent has to form is really the concept of uh, profession and sort of, okay. And if you can see it's linked to the first one, but it's not at all the same. Um, I got a job at a convenience store. Uh, it's not a profession. <laughs> it's, um, is that all there is? And uh, the child's discovery of labor, the child's discovery also of interests and also the child's strange dilemma of integrating a course of study that doesn't seem to have much to do with making money or, you know, this is particularly true now that education is no longer the key to social mobility that it was 
for you and for me and for the younger generation here in Korea. Um, now that everybody has tertiary education in Korea, or virtually everybody has tertiary education, I think there are 10% of the population doesn't attend a university of some kind or another. Uh, it's pretty much the case that um, the lower classes have college educations here in Korea. This isn't yet true in the United States. I think it's a, another sign that the United States is not as, a, is not as developed as, as South Korea is, despite the, um, on paper, there's a higher GDP uh, in, in many ways, including sociocultural ways. I think, I think of the country where I was born as being a, on a, like I say, I think all societies are basically in the, if you take the long view, they're basically at the same level. I think there is no, no essential difference in the way our own society treats women and the way in which Tuku society treats women. Uh, and so in that sense, although I'm a developmentalist and, and I, I remain a developmentalist, I don't think that developmentalism is a basis for racism of any kind, because I think that the uh, higher levels of development will all remain in the future. So the second one is choice of profession, and that's becoming extremely fraught. Uh, the answers that most young people have, most of my young people anyway, most of the young people I teach, are to prolong or to delay or to put off sociocultural maturation in some way and to pursue higher and higher levels of education. I suppose in that way I am a role model since I didn't do my PhD until I was in my late 50s, <laughs> having spent virtually my entire life in a kind of sociocultural adolescence. Um, so this, but the second P is profession. And as you can see, profession and persona are becoming um, more and more divergent for young people. But the third one is partner, partner. How do you find somebody? And I don't just mean, you know, find somebody on time on, who will take away your virginity uh, on Tinder or Gridlock or Grinder or whatever it's called these days. I don't just mean swipe left, swipe right. Uh, I mean the kind of partner that Violetta needs, the kind of partner who will take a bullet for you, the kind of partner who will be there when you, and you will, suffer your fatal illness. Uh, because it may not be AIDS, it may not be COVID, but it will happen. You will grow old. And eventually, the extra life that sociocultural maturation, in a sociogenetic sense, <laughs> has granted you, that too will expire. And uh, your verbal thinking, <laughs> at least uh, your self-directed thinking and uh, your feelings will have to be replaced with your writings and with the, your sayings and with the memory you leave in those, those behind you, principally your partner. And so the choice of partner looms very large for the adolescent. And what we have to do is to somehow disentangle that choice of partner from general maturation, including sexual maturation, uh, and, uh, and get people to think of who's gonna take a bullet for you. And I think that more than anything else is what is lacking from Lisa's song. And that, more than anything else, is what I get out of Tuku's song. That, to me, explains why the name of the song, whether you look at it in Shona or in English, is what shall we do? What shall we do? And that's really all I had to say about music. I'll, I'll talk again later if you, if you are interested in the other songs. So I'm going to stop here.